Understanding China has become more difficult than ever, yet also more important than ever. Whether the U.S. and China are rivals, partners, or a mix of both, effective policy will only be as good as the information on which it is based. My name is Scott Kennedy, and I'm the senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I also have had the privilege of being one of the few American scholars who has traveled back and forth between Washington and Beijing in recent years. I'm a firm believer that field research, direct observation, talking, and listening to Chinese perspectives must be a part of our toolkit to understand the People's Republic of China. So join me as I speak with Chinese leaders from business, government, and academia, and foreigners who have spent many years living and working in China. What makes China tick? Where is the country going? What connects us? And what divides us? We'll dive into all of that and more on this podcast. Welcome to China Field Notes. I am delighted to welcome to China Field Notes Michael Hart, who is the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in China. Uh, Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Great to be with you. Let me give folks a little bit of background about you and then. I want to have you elaborate, and then we're going to have a fantastic discussion. As I understand it, you first went to Asia in the mid-90s, living in Taipei, and then moving to mainland China. And you're one of the few people I know that have lived for a long time in Tianjin. Is that right? That, that's right. So I actually started in Kaohsiung. So I spent a year in Kaohsiung, five years in Taipei, four years in Shanghai, 15 years in Tianjin, and I've been in Beijing a little bit over a year. My God, you've been like to every major port city on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. That's pretty, pretty cool. You've been president of AmCham for the past year plus. Right. And I've known just about every AmCham president, which is not meant to brag. It just, it's my job to follow government affairs and U.S.-China relations. So going back to, to Michael First, Chris Merck. Mike Barbalis, Mark Duvall, and your immediate predecessor, Al Bibi, you have a great group of people whose shoulders you're standing on top of. So it's, uh, it's really a great opportunity for us to have you with us today for the program. So let me go back to those early days and ask how you became interested in, in Asia and China in the first place and decided to, to move to Kaohsiung and then across the, the seas over to mainland China. Okay. So I'm actually from Southwest Missouri, rural Missouri. I was influenced by exchange students. And so I spent a year in Germany before college. And so when I finished university, I wanted to have an Asian experience to go with some European experience. And so I, I thought two years in the Peace Corps was too long. So I signed up to work for a nonprofit for one year for something called the Overseas Corps of the YMCA. And so I was placed in Kaohsiung for a year to teach, and the YMCA used that income to run their programs. And so I thought I would be in Asia for one year. And uh, 26 years later, I'm still there. And so I didn't speak Chinese. I had to start to learn that in Taiwan. And then, again, I studied finance. I thought I was going to be a banker. When I decided to leave nonprofit, I went and worked for a real estate company. And then that real estate company took me to uh, mainland China uh, and then even to Tianjin. So I spent uh, 18 years with a U.S. real estate company called JLL. And I was with the, the predecessor. They bought a Taiwanese company that I was working for. 
And so much of my career and the way I look at China and the world is actually through a real estate lens, how companies choose their locations. One of the things we might get into, but when I was in Shanghai, I was eventually the head of research for JLL. And that meant we were explaining to people what China looked like. And we wrote a report called China 30 because everybody said, we know Beijing, we know Shanghai, where else should we be? And so that report came out right about the time I was moving to, to Tianjin. And so as we were helping companies decide where to be in China, my own company was expanding. And so I moved to Tianjin to take the opportunity to run a brand of a company we were opening. And so managing experience, and I liked to say that Tianjin was real China. Mm, that's really interesting. So JLL, I think you all ran the apartment complex that I lived in in Beijing. We probably ran a lot. And my, my wife's kids and I all lived there. We all had a great time. So nothing went wrong. There was hot water. The locks all worked. All of the things that someone occasionally hears about living in, in city life in China, things about well. So I don't have any, any, any negative things to leak or say or anything like that. So just to, to stay on real estate, this is sort of like how China developed, right? And, and how, we, how it's most visible to, to the rest of us. You know, what was some of the most interesting experiences you had with the construction of the physical construction of, of the new China and how, how it's changed the lives of people? So primarily JLL did commercial real estate. So we didn't do that much residential. Um, and what was interesting was the way China looks at development. So for example, in every tier two city, there's a development zone and they look to attract investment. And so what a lot of people don't realize is that at a high level, of course, China sets a GDP target and that GDP needs to be delivered locally. And so local development zones and cities would be competing to attract investment. And those local officials are benchmarked off of how many companies do you bring in? What's their invested capital? What tax will they pay? How many people will they employ? And what's their brand's name? Uh-huh. And so, you know, that's what we were helping companies do, find places to be or helping development zones to, in some cases, attract people. And so it was just really interesting to see how that investment, you know, drove the overall economic activity. Uh, when I was in Tianjin, there was a development zone called TIDA, so TDA, the Tianjin Development uh, Economic Development Zone, at which was one of the best in China. And so it was really interesting to see, you know, how that investment impacted activity. I think a lot of people don't appreciate um, the huge positive impact that U.S. business has had. So, for example. Before I came to Tianjin, Motorola had already left, but they had been a major investor in Tianjin. And so for you know a decade later, you would meet all these business people who'd gotten their start at Motorola. Uh, you know, Chinese people had now gone to other things. And so you know, we could just really see how that investment was a positive impact on the Chinese economy. Well, you mentioned these local officials and the targets. So it sounds like perfect preparation for running AmCham China, you, since you've done a lot of this work. So what is the role for an organization like AmCham China in a place like China, which has very different politics than the United States and where policy sometimes is, and and maybe often not made in public, where it's very difficult to learn what policy is. What is the value proposition for AmCham China? So AmCham China, we say we do, first of all, we try to help American businesses succeed in China. But we talk about three main areas, so A, B, C. A is advocacy, uh, B is business, and C is community. So in terms of advocacy, one of the things we do each year is we write this white paper 
which goes sector by sector, and in some cases, city by city, where we give recommendations to the Chinese government about how they should reform or where they should open. And we say, you know, selfishly, these recommendations are good for our member companies. But number two, they will actually be good for the Chinese economy. And so that white paper is a major policy document. And maybe I'll talk about that in just a minute. We also have a business climate survey where each year we check to see how U.S. companies are doing in China and we give that feedback to the government. We also, of course, bring the white paper to Washington, D.C. to you know, encourage the U.S. government, if you're going to take a position on China that would be beneficial to U.S. businesses, please choose one of the things from our white paper. The B is the business to business where we bring companies together to say, you know, you've been here doing some activity or you're in some sector. Can you share your experience, best practice for other American companies? And so we have a lot of robust events and discussions around, usually around committees in specific sectors, but that's their sharing best practice. And the C is the community, which years ago was important when the Americans needed to get together to celebrate 4th of July or um, you know, the holidays to have some, some events together. That became less important as China became more developed. But that's kind of the basic framework. And what we do try to do is to help U.S. companies understand when rules change or advocate for things that would be, would be better. Terrific. Terrific. Well, we've got it right here uh, with us, uh, the latest white paper. You can hear the thousand plus 500 and some odd pages long. Well, it's English and Chinese. So, and the English is longer than the Chinese language because Chinese is, doesn't need quite as much space. But nevertheless, it's it's a thick document. And I believe this is year 25 the of the white paper. So let me ask about the, the A in the ABC advocacy. I did research on lobbying, wrote a book about it. That's why I know so many of your, your predecessors as well. Again, China, because of its authoritarian political system, uh, the lack of transparency, uh, the role of the party. How, how does one engage in government affairs in, in China to get officialdom to listen, let alone do exactly what is written inside these pages? It's interesting. Recently, AmCham has been a great vector for these discussions because Chinese government officials don't want to meet companies one-on-one very often because one, is not a great use of their time. And two, they don't want any appearance of impropriety, particularly after a scandal a few years ago involving pharma companies. The government would prefer to meet companies in a group and vice versa. Um, sometimes companies want to raise specific issues, but they don't want their name used. And so AmCham China can be the shield to say there are issues that we need to talk about. There was a meeting I had last year with the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, and it was a good example. We were there to deliver the white paper. We had retail banks, investment banks, insurance companies, rating agencies, and certifying organizations. And it was a really robust discussion with over a dozen officials from the PBOC. Some of the questions, they said, that's not really our problem. That's a different agency or different entity. But many of the questions they did take on and, you know, financial services are one area where we think advocacy has been really helpful. You now can have foreign entities can now own full shares of their banks or insurance companies in many cases, where originally you had to come in with a, a partner and be a minority stake. And so we actually think in this case, because U.S. financial services are so advanced and sophisticated, they can bring a lot of things to Chinese consumers. They can help the you know, Chinese economy in general, but of course, it's a great market for, for U.S. companies. And so that's just you know one example of how we do advocacy. 
Sometimes there's a little bit of back and forth. Sometimes the government will say, we want to meet you know, these five companies. And we'll say, well, that's great. We also want to bring these five companies because these guys helped write the white paper because the white paper is largely sourced by our members who are helping raise issues. And so it's really important when we have the discussion with the government that we have the people around the table who understand the specific issues. And, you know, and sometimes we're able to highlight things to the Chinese government that your rules are making this thing happen or not allowing this thing to happen that they didn't realize. Sometimes the, the rule has a different impact than was intended. And then we can have those discussions with the white paper as the background. That sounds like a, a good outcome. And I'm glad the PVOC is open relative to other parts of the Chinese government. We would think they would be given their, their training and everything that they're responsible for. What are the more frustrating parts of the, the Chinese system to interact with? Is it the folks who manage cyber policy or data, visas? Where is, is it more of a, a brick wall and challenging and you, you go home and complain about what didn't work out today? Right. So the folks doing uh, data and cyber are some of the hardest to get meetings with, and it, which is, of course, critical because more and more companies, almost everybody now has some element of data. So for the past few years, the hardest meetings to get have been those around data, computer systems. And so not only do you not go home from the meeting frustrated, you often are frustrated because you can't get a meeting. Um, yeah. So that's a challenge. The other thing we do with the white paper is we give a uh, ranking. So sometimes we say we make good progress or bad progress. And sometimes the Chinese officials will say to us, this is the same as it was last year. You didn't update the chapter. And we say that's because you've made no progress. Tax policy has been one, which is kind of an ongoing piece. There's this individual income tax on foreigners, which is very high. And so there are some exemptions for foreign companies. And a couple of years ago, there was a tax holiday. It was delayed and it's about to expire again. And so we're advocating again. The Chinese tell themselves stories sometimes, just as the Americans do. But one of the stories that we often hear is, well, we treat American companies better. We give you lower tax rates to invest. Therefore, we treat you better than Chinese companies. And I think there's two misinterpretations there. Number one, to be frank, many of the U.S. companies or foreign companies, they actually report their income. So they're paying, they're paying tax on real income, yeah. where sometimes the Chinese entities may not be reporting full income. So there's a difference there. The other thing is that Chinese policy wasn't designed to give foreigners benefits. It was to make China competitive with other markets. Yeah. So for example, you know, if income tax in Hong Kong is 15%, but in mainland China, it's up to 45% then China does need to make some exceptions to make themselves competitive. And I think sometimes they forget that piece. It's not like foreign companies got special benefits. It was China was trying to make itself competitive vis-a-vis -vis other markets. I want to bring up one part of the, the business climate survey. I know that Chinese officials pay attention to because I ask them about this all the time, and you all probably do as well. And, and that's the part of the business climate survey around whether firms are, are moving some of their production or entirely out of China. The other one they pay attention to is how profitable companies, because they could say, look how profitable you are. You complain, but you're making a bunch of money. But the other thing they pay attention to is, is are folks staying? That seems to be very important to them. And the most recent business climate survey that, that you all issued, I think showed somewhere around 12% of members who had already moved some something out of China and 12% were considering. So 24, that number is very similar to the European Chamber of Commerce in China number. It's a little bit, it's short of the data that we found on Taiwanese, 
where it was up to 26% who already started to move something in the third thinking about it. So 59% there are off the charts. And maybe that's a consequence of having done this just before Pelosi's visit to Taipei. But in any case, uh, higher. But the number that you all find is, is gradually going up. Why do you think the numbers are going up? And is there significant variation by industry? And you're just seeing this in one part of the, your membership relative to others. Basically, everybody's satisfied. I think we're just trying to understand the trajectory of what is driving this calculus. Right. Now, I think that question is primarily to manufacturing companies. Are you, are you moving operations? So here's where I put on my real estate hat. Because on the one hand, I don't really like this question because I think it, it gives the Chinese a false sense of security. So for example, this past year, it was, I think, 70, 72, 74% said they were not moving. And the year before, it was like 82. So it was actually a significant um, decrease in the number of folks said they were staying. Where I put my real estate hat on here is when you set up a manufacturing facility in China, as we would anywhere, you have a long-term plan. So land leases in China would be 20 to 25 years. And so someone would set up a factory and say, I'll be here for 20 to 25 years. And the critical decision comes two or three years before that leasehold expires when you say, do you want to renew it? So as an example, when I was in Tianjin and Samsung cell phones, when their factory lease expired, they decided not to renew and they moved to Vietnam. And so to me, the critical factor is not necessarily how many people say they're leaving this year. Because if you're in the year 15 and you have a bad year, you don't pick up and leave, but then you don't renew. And so I think what's happening is if you invested 15 to 20 years ago, China is a very different market now. Number one, you may have domestic competitors. Number two, labor costs have gone up. And there's a whole number of reasons why you might decide not to stay or you might move somewhere else. And so to me, there's like two scary pieces of this. Number one, clearly in the past year, a lot of companies have talked about they're starting to look for other locations. The second thing is because of the past three years of COVID zero control, there's been almost no new FDI, at least no new greenfield investment. And so the scary part is there aren't more people coming in and setting up factories. There's just people whose clock is ticking. And as they get closer and closer to the end of that, they may not renew. So I think actually it's a, it's a much more critical question than I think the Chinese realize. Now, where are they going? Of course, a number of people are going to Vietnam. There's been a lot of news about that. Um, I was recently talking to a factory manager who had been sent to India to look for an alternative place to set up a facility and he was very frustrated, right? He didn't go to India because he wanted to. He went to India because his company told him, go find a substitute for China. And he came back and said, I would love to set up a factory in India if I could have power all day long. He said, you know, where we were, there were power cuts. And so he said, how do I set up a facility in India that replicates the workforce that I have in China, the ecosystem that I have in China, the transportation, the logistics that I have in China? And he said, it's just not a fair substitute, even though labor rates have risen in China. So it's just interesting that although companies are starting to look, there are a lot of easy alternatives. One other question, a number of folks in US government have said, we have moral issues related to human rights in China. We shouldn't be in China. But if you go to India, there are also human rights issues there. And so again, you're not solving all issues by moving outside of China. Sure, sure. So you suggested that there's more movement or anxiety than the data reflect perhaps, but it's a nuanced shift. It's not absolutely every company's getting up lock, stock and barrel and moving. It's not decoupling. One of the favorite works of Washington. Is that right? 
I think that's right. And I think you've heard it used here. People are, they say they're de-risking. Maybe their next investment won't be in China. Their next investment would be somewhere else. And so we're seeing that kind of movement. We talked to two companies recently. One of them said, China is currently absolutely critical to our global profit. Like most of our profits globally come from China and China supports the rest of the business. Another company said, China could be amazing market for us. In fact, for the next 20 years, we can see a runway of profits if we could participate, but we're not able to participate because of local competition and bias rules that are holding us back. In both cases, they saw the opportunity. One was, I'm not able to take advantage of it, but China is still a place where a lot of people can be successful. And I would say, isn't that why we wanted China and WTO? Isn't that why we made these investments 20, 30 years ago. So why not reap the benefits now while we can? We're in Washington right now for the door knock, which has been virtual for a while. So I'm glad that you've been able to come get some jet lag. But I'm wondering if having gotten this jet lag, you've discovered a place that is not as familiar to you as, as before. You, you've met folks in the Biden administration, some Capitol Hill on this trip. The program's going to air you know, significantly after, you know, several weeks down the road. So we're not asking, people aren't going to be hearing about what happened yesterday, but, but broadly speaking, because there's been this time when you all have not been able to come on the door knock, what most surprised you about the mood or, or what you heard? Well, I should first say maybe it was, we thought it was important for us to come back because as I say, people in China sit in a different soup than people in DC sit. We sit in different media environments. And so I thought it was important for us to come back to make sure that we do understand the environment that people are sitting in. I've actually been surprised that there is such a difference of opinion between, let's say, people of the administration and think tanks in Capitol Hill. I'm much more surprised and pleased that there's a much more nuanced view. I guess I probably should have known this, but often what we hear in China is the United States thinks this, or the United States has this view of China. And it's a lot more nuanced than I think I had um, expected, which is good. And of course, because there is a lot of uh, deep bench experience in DC for people who have spent a lot of time in China and understand that it is a nuanced market, we haven't gotten a great reception everywhere. A number of people do think that US business is somehow carrying the water for Communist Party, which is ludicrous in my view. But yeah, it's been a, it's been a good visit. Well, if you've encountered variation in opinion across the city, then actually in some ways that's a new thing because it, for a while, everyone emphasized the consensus. And I think now we're noticing that there's that consensus that wasn't necessarily as solid as people thought or that things have, have changed. Uh, perhaps the end of zero COVID and China's gradual reopening or, or other things. Uh, so that is actually a relatively recent change uh, that that is is quite important. I think I would I would agree with you, even even though you often hear people on the sides of the consensus that is is DC on China distinct from everything else happening in, in our nation's capital. Amongst the people that you've spoken to or just watching Washington from afar, given that you lived in China for for so long now uh, and interact with so many people, is there one most important thing that Washington doesn't get about China or about the relationship that if you went to China, if you were there and were in the other soup for a while or just simply and not necessarily 
being exposed just to the Chinese media, but just Chinese people and American companies that are there. What would be the epiphany that they might have? So Americans needing to understand China. Yeah. I, so I don't think that there's enough appreciation on either side, but it seems certainly on this side, folks have forgotten how important China is to our current economy and how intertwined we are. Um, I don't think people appreciate how big the, the cross-border trade is and how damaging it would be to the U.S. economy if we had a rapid um, decoupling. I don't think people appreciate that enough. The other thing I don't think people appreciate enough is that much of the goodwill towards the United States in China is because of brand USA. The fact that U.S. companies are in China selling goods that are seen as high quality, high reputation, employing a number of people in ways that are seen as models, sourcing and doing, you know, running their factories in ways that are green or, um, you know, everything from sourcing food to materials. So the U.S. just sits, sets a benchmark in many ways that I think people in the United States would be proud of the way U.S. business conducts itself overseas and particularly in China. And again, I think part of the goodwill in China towards the United States is because of the touch points that people have in China with U.S. brands and U.S. companies. And Jim China hopefully is one of those as well. Well, let's turn to one of those areas where there's a little bit of tension, the export controls. I was in China in October when the October 7th regulations came out. It came up in just about every meeting right after. From that point on, I'm sure that it's come up in most of your meetings. You all, again, in the white paper, bring it up. And so I want to I wanna turn to your analysis and proposal. I, as you said, this is put together by your members. So it's, it, this isn't necessarily directly out of the pen of Michael Hart, but it's with your overall endorsement. I probably not a lot of stuff gets by you that you would really oppose. But any case, just to say it's from the white paper. And for those who want to go look, it's on page 112. So on page 112, you all talk about the semiconductor restrictions. And the thing that you all emphasize is about, you, you're, you say, we are concerned that the unilateral nature of these controls will serve only to inhibit U.S. companies' trade without accomplishing U.S. national security goals. AmCham members are also concerned that the level of the controls has broadly captured mature technology levels that China can already reach and serve only to negatively impact global supply chains. So I guess the question is, I guess you could have a couple kinds of responses from that. One would be the implication, well, let's make sure we get everyone else on board for the export controls that we've announced. And it's not that there's too, that they're too strong. It's just they're, they're too unilateral. So adding Japan and the Netherlands, for example, would be a positive as opposed to saying, suggesting just take them away. The other has to do with the Chinese program for civil military fusion, that perhaps these mature technologies may somehow provide a, a value for, even though they're essentially off the shelf, usually used for, for commercial purposes. So can you talk a little bit about the challenge of the unilateralism as well as trying to identify the level of technologies that ought to be subject to export controls versus those that ought to be left to just the commercial market. Right. So the, the first thing, when we talk to the U.S. government about specific controls, we do say, try to be as specific as possible, try to be as narrowly focused as possible. 
So for example, don't say restrict all semiconductors, which they haven't done. So that's the first piece, to try to be as specific and as narrow as possible so that we can continue to operate. The thing you said about unilateral is absolutely true. If the only thing restrictions are doing is taking U.S. companies out of the game, then that hurts us competitively, whether we could be replaced by our allies or friends or by the Chinese themselves. And so that's just part of it. You know, there have been some discussions in this week about if you can't scale your debt and one of the things, whether it be in biosciences or chips or other things, in many cases, operating in China gives companies scale to produce efficiently. And if you take away the China market, then U.S. companies wouldn't be competitive anywhere else either. And so that's, I think, what that's getting at. And I believe the comment about mature technologies versus cutting edge technologies, I think that was the idea that, you know, if it's a brand new technology, cutting edge, we can understand why there's investment controls, export controls. But for mature technologies, are you just hurting us and taking us out of the game? Sure. The Biden administration likes to say that their goal is a small yard and a high fence. So just following your advice, specific technologies, the details, not everything under the sun. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan in the recent speech and comments used that language. Again, I think, I think it's going to maybe be the word of 2023 in Washington. How, how well do you think they have adhered to that idea? The administration? Yes, small yard, high fence. So there's a lot of things in um, Jake Sullivan's speech that talks about, I think it's four different, four different sectors. Maybe. And so I think so far we've only seen real specific things around semiconductors. And so one of the things the business community wants to understand is what else is coming. And once you hit other sectors, whether it be you know, life sciences or the new energy, if I remember correctly, is one of them, what that will be. And so, so far, yes, they've been specific, but there seems to be a lot more in the, in the pipeline. Sure. So that gets to the question of predictability as well, right? So not only targeted, but allows companies to plan down the road quite a bit. And if so, I, I could see that makes sense. We're almost done. And I really appreciate you participating in the conversation. And I wanted to ask, what are a couple of things the Chinese government could do to help U.S.-China relations? If you got the right meetings, you were, I don't know if it was going into Zhou Nanhai and, and, you know, Xi Jinping has an open evening or a certain member of the state council or a provincial party secretary, what are a couple of things that you would put really high on your agenda for hoping the Chinese could do? I think one of the things everybody admits is that U.S.-China relations are in a bit of a bad place. What we don't see is an admission that probably both sides bear some responsibility for the issue. And I did hear folks from the U.S. administration here say the Chinese are not willing to admit that they have any part in the breakdown of relations. And so I think that's an important message for the, for the Chinese to have, for them to acknowledge that. That would actually, I think, build a lot more goodwill in the discussion. Certainly, you know, one thing I would say, both sides need to do more visits. We need to have more Chinese officials coming this direction and vice versa. There just need to be a lot more discussions. It also does seem that there hasn't been much goodwill to the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. There haven't been enough meetings. And so we'd like to see a lot more of those. The discussion that we've heard in, in DC recently, a lot of fear of an accidental incident. And so there was concern and on the US side that a number of the lines of communication have been shut down. And so I think everybody 
who has a stake in this, which is almost all of us, would appreciate if there were a lot more ways for the two sides to communicate with each other in case of an emergency or an accidental issue, whether that be an airplane or a boat or something else. Sure. Well, we've already talked about, again, export controls. And some of the suggestions you made apply perhaps to both governments. Is there something in particular that we haven't touched upon yet that you're hoping Washington does or the way they think about the relationship that would be sort of more productive from your perspective? One of the things we've heard a lot is a number of U.S. officials have said, well, we're targeting the Chinese Communist Party. And on the Chinese side, a lot of the anti-China rhetoric sounds like it's anti-China as in Chinese people. And there isn't, in terms of the reception, there's not a lot of understanding in China that the people are trying to be nuanced. A lot of Chinese people feel like they also are under attack from rhetoric out of the U.S. And so I think the U.S. needs to keep in mind that it's very important to, you can't really differentiate and say, we don't like the Communist Party, but we like Chinese people. That doesn't seem to be working. They need to realize that anything that sounds anti-China feels you know, anti-US. A lot of young Chinese employees or students have asked me, why does the United States not want China to succeed? Why does the United States not want China to be a global power? To which I say, you know, China is already a global power. And it's an interesting time because both countries need to realize that we're going to continue to be the largest two economies in the world for the next couple decades, and we need to figure out how to live together peacefully. Well, that's a great point to conclude on. I want to thank Michael for joining us for your work at, at the chamber for helping keep Americans uh, in the United States informed and your, your members well served, and also for the support you've given to me and my colleagues at CSIS to help us understand what's going on in China. And so thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to China Field Notes. Stay up to date with our latest releases by following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to great content. Until next time.